Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. We are here today with Ruben Shimanoff the director of Sephardi House, which is part of the American Sephardi Federation. He is a lecturer extraordinaire, a calligrapher, and so much more as you're gonna hear. I don't wanna talk too much because I think we all need to hear from Ruben. So thank you for agreeing to be part of Reclaiming Identity podcast. And even though we're both part of the American Sephardi Federation, we rarely have a chance to just sit down and talk. So I'm excited about this on a personal level as well. I'm just gonna put that out there. So tell us a little bit about yourself professionally. Uh, sure. I'm also really excited to finally have this conversation. Uh, Dora, you and I have been trying to make this happen for a while. Mm-hmm. Mostly it was me <laughs> rescheduling. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to, to speak um, through the lens of diversity, unity, uh, reconnecting and, and reasserting our own unique identities. These topics are very near and dear to my heart. So to speak, uh, to, to speak, through this lens is uh, is, is really exciting. Um, so I am the national director of Sephardi House and Young Leadership at the American Sephardi Federation. Sephardi House is a relatively new initiative. We are in our third year now, and it is a yeah a relatively new initiative at the American Sephardi Federation um, that seeks to infuse the warmth, wisdom, vitality and creativity of the Sephardi spirit into Jewish life on campus. So essentially, our mission is to um, apply the the broader mission of the ASF, which is to celebrate and elevate, promote, um, perpetuate the rich mosaic culture of the greater Sephardic world. We want to apply that broader mission to Jewish life on campus and to do it in a way that inspires that enriches students, that empowers them, both Sephardi and Mizrahi students who might have felt um, like their histories, identities, experiences are a bit more on the margins, um, and also to enrich and inspire all Jewish students on campus. And even furthermore, to create important bridges between Jewish students and their peers outside of the Jewish world. All of these we think are crucial um, Sephardic values. And so uh, we are seeking to bring that spirit, that energy, that ruach, if you will, into Jewish life on campus. Um, So that's been taking up most of my time uh, professionally, uh, but I also, for the ASF, I I hold various other hats um, and uh, in, I do guest like uh, um, I, I, I lecture. I uh, make calligraphy pieces for for the ASF. Um, and you have an exhibit opening soon, right? 
I do, I do. Actually, I'm very excited about that. I have an exhibit in the Center for Jewish History um, space. Uh, there's a, the Leon Levy gallery that, that is ASF's <clears throat> gallery space there. Uh, we will be highlighting some of my multilingual Hebrew Arabic Persian calligraphy. But all of these things, whether it's uh, me working directly with college students, specifically we have within the Sephardi House ecosystem, we have a fellowship uh, this year for 27 really wonderful rock star student leaders from around the country. And so I serve as a mentor for them, um, as an educator, as the person designing the curriculum for the year and kind of the programming for the arc of the year for this fellowship. So between that, between corresponding with various Hillels and Chabads, like I said, um, also speaking for giving talks for ASF in general, guest uh, guest lecturing for IJE, all of that, um, the, the calligraphy, it all falls under this beautiful umbrella of my um, of my work at ASF, and and has really allowed me to has really called upon all the different layers of my own identity. Great. So that's a great segue into my next question, which is tell us a little bit about your heritage and your identity. For sure. So I was born in Uzbekistan in 1987 at a time when this country was uh, a part of the USSR, the, the former Soviet Union. For those, I always, before I even say anything about the Jewish community of the region, I, I always like to begin with orienting uh, the, the, the story and, and, and uh, rooting ourselves in the region. So Uzbekistan, because I've realized actually that many folks do not know where this country is or where, or where the region of Central Asia is. So Uzbekistan is in a region called Central Asia. And as the name connotes, Central Asia is really in the heart of, of the Asian continent at the crossroads of East Asia, South Asia, the Middle East, and Russia. I once actually recall asking someone, or someone asked me, where are you from? And I said, Uzbekistan. They said, oh, I haven't heard of that country. And I said, um, do you know where Central Asia is? And they said, mm, also, I don't know. And I thought just the name itself would imply, you know, Central Asia and the heart of Asia. So I said, okay, well, you know where, do you know where East Asia is? China, Mongolia, Korea? Yes. Do you know where South Asia is? Pakistan, India, Bangladesh? Yes. You know where the Middle East is, the Arab world, and Iran? Yes. Do you know where Russia is? Yes. What do you think is in the middle of all that? That's what I asked. And that person said, I don't know, an ocean. So it is not uh, an ocean. <laughs> it is um, a big chunk of land uh, aptly known as Central Asia. Big region in the heart of Asia, as I said, connecting those places. Uh, historically, it's played a very important role in connecting different parts of Asia. And I would say Eurasia, because um, the, the Silk Roads, the, these important trading routes, these arteries, these trading arteries made their way through Central Asia. They connected the East, East Asia to Europe. And so this is an, an area that has been very important economically, politically, socially, uh, geostrategically. And, and that's where I was born in this heartland, if you will, and specifically within that heartland in uh, a place that is now known as, as Uzbekistan. It was known by different, you know, it was part of different empires and emirates. And, uh, and I was born in the capital, Tashkent.
my community, the, the, the Jews with uh, deep roots in Central Asia, we are known as Bukharian Jews. So the way that I often, when people ask me who are Bukharian Jews, I say, if I had one sentence, I would say the ancient Persian speaking Jewish community of Central Asia. That's, I think, the best way to describe us. Um, we have lived in different parts of Central Asia, especially the southern parts of Central Asia, places in Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, definitely Uzbekistan, historical cities like Samarkand and Bukhara. And our story is also deeply connected to that of the Jews of Afghanistan and of Iran. And we are um, really part of this broader Persian-speaking uh, Jewish collective. And our stories are very much intertwined. Mine, for example, and maybe I'll say a little bit more in a second, but on my father's side, for example, there's a more recent connection to Afghanistan and Iran. Historically, there was always movement. And, and again, we are part of this kind of Judeo-Persian world, so there's that connection. But on my father's side, that side of my family fled a violent uprising in Mashhad, uh, which is no a city in northeastern Iran. In the uh, first half of the 19th century, there was um, a essentially a pogrom that happened there. Uh, they were forcibly converted to Islam, but a smaller community escaped. Uh, they fled and they went to Herat in Afghanistan and then from there went into parts of Central Asia. So that's my father's side. So that's a more recent Iranian connection. And my mother's side, we've been in the region forever. Um, but again, the story, I always like to contextualize it within a broader story of Jews of the Persian speaking world. So it's a little bit about uh, where I was born, uh, a little uh, introduction to the Bukharian Jewish community and our Central Asian Persian uh, roots. And then the last thing I'll say right now is um, there's also the, the Russian speaking piece that makes our story that much more kind of um, unique and surprising for people because most people when they think of RSJs, when they think of Russian speaking Jews, they might think of Jews from Ukraine, from Russia proper, from Belarus, um, various Ashkenazi um, and historically Yiddish speaking Jewish communities. And that's an important part of the story. But then you also have Jews of the greater Sephardi Mizrahi world, like Georgian Jews, Kafkazi Jews, also known as Mountain Jews, and Bukharian Jews, who also were part of this Russian uh, imperial and then Soviet experiment. So that's part of our story. I've led a several um, three-part series in partnership with IGE on this topic. I call it At the Crossroads of Sephardic Mizrahi and Russian, speak, uh, Russian Speaking Jewish the multi-layered story of Kafkazi, Georgian, and Bukharian Jews. Um, you so came into it. I was going to tell everybody that you need to hear more because this is kind of a little taste about what Ruben talks about. Because like yeah, I said, yeah. he is a lecturer extraordinaire and really dives deep into all yeah, these I'm, I'm trying hard not to. I'm trying hard not to make this a lecture, but I can't help but, you know, when I, when I contextualize everything I can help but give that historical background. So um, so that's just another layer to, to my own story. I mean, saying this is a way of, of really of painting my own story. I'm not just a, a, a trying to be a, a lecturer here. You know, I grew up in um, 
at a time when the Soviet Union was um, kind of on its way out, but it was it was the final years of that. Uh, again, I like to say experiment. It was a very interesting experiment in the 20th century. Um, so technically, actually, I was born in a country that no longer exists because Uzbekistan was a republic within the USSR. USSR was the country that was the representative, you know, of the United Nations, and and these were all almost like states right within that. So I was born in the USSR, and when we left. I left the independent Republic of Uzbekistan uh, that was um, how many years old? That was two years old. Yeah, because in wow. 1991, uh, that's when the Soviet Union collapsed and we left in 93. So I bring up that to just add another layer to the story. So here we are, this deeply rooted uh, uh, Persian speaking, and we had our own Judeo-Persian dialect which we call Bukhari, but here we are, this uh, you know deeply rooted greater Sephardic Mizrahi community in uh, in Central Asia, um, experiencing through the centuries different conquests and empires that came and went, and then and the last example of that uh, empire uh, played a very important role in the language, uh, in, in a language that I speak uh, very well, in the way that I connect to the broader former Soviet world, um, and that's and that's Russian. So um, that is another crucial piece uh, to the story. It's one that kind of surprises some people. Um, but um, those that last century plus added and that extra layer of complexity, beauty, and trauma, you know, all all at once. And your personal history is at the crossroads of all these different, you know, Judeo-Persian at home, yet Russian speaking, and within different communities, even within America. I mean, you. Yeah. And then, and then coming here and um, at the young age of six and a half, and with time having English really become my, in many ways, my primary language. Um, it's the language I, I dream in. Um, it's the language I speak uh, to, to my mom in, um, um, by and large, even though we infuse our English with, uh, with a lot of Russian, with uh, the Bukhari, the Judeo-Persian, or more specifically, if we're going to get granular, I should really say Judeo-Tajik. So Tajik is the Eastern Central Asian variant of Farsi, of Persian, and Bukharian is the Jewish variant of that. So Bukharian or Bukhari is Judeo-Tajik, which is Judeo-Eastern Persian. But yeah, so, um, and then my family, you know, that went to Israel, add uh, Hebrew as an important layer to that story. Hebrew is also near and dear to my heart. And we'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit about how that's reflected in my calligraphy and in, in other things that I do, but it's not the language of everyday conversation for me, for my family in Israel, that has become, uh, you know, a, a crucial and primary language. And then I have family that went to Austria in the 70s. There was a, an opportunity, kind of the Iron Curtain was, there were little... Uh, Little holes, little yeah. pores in the Iron Curtain during that time. We know this. This is also the Refusenik movement. This is when uh, Soviet Jews were for the first time really able to leave en masse um, in any kind of critical way uh, and leave a regime that they were finding oppressive. This is when we had, um, you know, the first kind of uh, relatively large influx to Israel and also to the U.S. Uh, by way of Europe um, and some stayed in in europe so in vienna austria there's actually a relatively sizable bukharian community and so i have cousins who look like me right you know like you know darker complexion hairy all of that and they speak german and it's it blows my mind i visited them when i was in high school and it was um, 
yeah, you know, this is the story. This is the diasporic, you know, story. I was actually just in Vienna and there's a great Bukharan restaurant there, by the way, just so you know. Um, they've already infused different communal foods there as well. But we did try some of the traditional because I said, you have to tell me what's traditionally Bukharan. And so we did. Um, oh, but it was, very, it was surreal. Like, like you're saying, like the, I'm eating in a Bukharan Jewish restaurant in Vienna. Like it was just yeah, but it's yeah. interesting to see that. And, and you actually went back to that region recently. Um, to you mean to Central Asia or to, yeah, to Central Asia? No, no, to Central Asia. Um, I no, I haven't. That's oh, I thought you were going. No, I'm go. I I hope to go. So oh, this is still no, but this is still very relevant. I pre I I appreciate that you you know you brought this up. I'm gonna say this, and this can be in the in the in the podcast. I was just. Uh, coughing uh, violently and it made me think that I really need to have some chai uh, next to me if this is really going to be a conversation about my Bukhari and Jewish identity how could I not have some tea uh, next to me I don't have it but but I should um, we tea is life for us in in Central Asia um, it's a very important part of our culture of how we gather communally um, this is something that we share with our Muslim neighbors this this tradition um, there are many other things that we share as well that has informed my uh, passion for Muslim Jewish interfaith work um, so again everything kind of comes back to you know my own upbringing Aurora you had just mentioned about um, me uh, uh, going back to, to Central Asia to Uzbekistan and I have yet to go back. When we came to the States, and we actually came as uh, refugees seeking asylum, that's how we and most Soviet Jews um, had left uh, the Soviet Union, um, the former Soviet Union, uh, largely with the help of an important resettlement organization, Jewish resettlement organization uh, called the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, HIAS, or as we would call it, KIAS. <laughs> and I don't know why we call it KIAS, we call it KIAS. So, when we yeah, when we came to the U.S. Uh, in the, in the winter of December 1993, it was a bitter bitter cold winter. I will always remember that. Um, we came as um, refugees seeking asylum, and uh, this very important Jewish resettlement asylum uh, asylum um, uh, agency, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, HIAS, and as I said, we call it we call it HIAS. Uh, played a very important role in our migration to uh, to the U.S. So those first couple of decades, right, I can now say, because I am, wow, it has almost been three decades. Okay, that's pretty wild. Wow, yeah. So um, those first um, several, several years, the priority was to just get our feet on the ground, as you could imagine, right? We came with... Um, you know, I sometimes tell this to, to people and they're like, oh, it sounds like an Ellis Island story from the turn of the, you know, of the last of the previous century from, you know, the 1900s and uh, early. And I say, no, this is 1993, 94. This is when this was happening. When I tell them stories of us coming with, you know, essentially what we packed. Right. And um, some other things that we were able to ship, but but very, very little. And there was a certain only certain amount of money we could bring with us. This was um I don't think it was actually American law. It was the law where we were leaving from, like what we were allowed to bring and everything we had to leave 
behind. So we really came as, um, you know, the like, we came poor. We came with no language skills, with uh, uh, essentially no money, and we're just trying to trying to figure out this and adapt to this new life and really just find our bearings. I mention all that because um, that means that for those many years, there was no thought of like visiting, you know, going to Uzbekistan or really going anywhere. <laughs> you know, it was about just working really, really hard. And I'm so grateful for the work ethic that I witnessed from my, within my family and my relatives, um, this real, just um, this drive and this, yeah, I think I can't think of a better word than, than work ethic of just of doing what needs to be done. I come from a family that's highly educated. I mean, these were engineers and professors and medical professionals, um, scholars, uh, scientists back in the former Soviet Union and here it meant nothing you just you could put that degree in the trash and so you had to you just had to pick up the pieces and do what you had to do so my family members were you know they did whatever work they needed to do whether it's custodial work whether it's you know working in a restaurant whether it's uh, babysitting whether you know nannying whatever you had to do you did and I really admire that you weren't above anything and and i know that my, my family story is not the only one this is the the immigrant story for for for, for, for many of us anyways so for a long time i personally myself started kind of I, I started experiencing this yearning for a place that my ancestors had called home for millennia and this yearning emerged when i started digging deeper into the rich history of my community and which which wasn't an automatic thing for many years i also have to say this for many years i was at best at best ambivalent about my background and at worst almost ashamed let's just say for now that this my own uh, ancestry and background Growing up in Seattle, this is where I grew up. I didn't grow up in New York. I grew up in Seattle. And I grew up actually in a beautiful, vibrant Jewish community with a very vibrant Sephardic presence as well, particularly rooted in the, the, the customs and traditions of Jews from Greece and Turkey. And that was wonderful. And we felt very much at home in, in the synagogue that we grew up going to because there was that element, that there was that thread that connected us. The melodies, the the, the 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 hospitality, it was the other at the other end of the greater Sephardi world, but there was that connection. At the same time, there weren't too many people who were coming from my distinct background. And as we know, the greater Sephardi Mizrahi world is not a monolith. And, and we shouldn't see it as one. Um, there's a lot of diversity within that. And so, you know, it's not even like it was anybody's fault, I would say. It's just the reality of when you when you don't see your own history and culture as represented just because again demographically there weren't that many Bukharians there there were actually some and my mom by the way was very much a pioneer when we moved in 95 we came from New York to Seattle in 95 we were like one of a handful of families and since then there are now I would say maybe you know 50 or so families maybe even more it's sizable I would say more than 50 families so all that's all I'm trying to say is that growing up I I didn't see a lot of examples of my 
both in my community. And so I thought, uh, you know, this is not something that's as important. Maybe our history was more kind of, you know, a footnote kind of on the on the margins um, of, of important Jewish intellectual and cultural history. Maybe we were, you know, living in a backwater, you know, kind of just somewhere that's not as as important. We're kind of on the confines of the Jewish world. So that's kind of what I thought. And I'm just going to um, point out that it wasn't an Ashkenormative. It was, if we can say, a Spardormative. Yeah, I mean, whether that or I think in that context, just it was, yeah, no, it was equally, there was, a, yeah, both uh, vibrant Sephardi presence, vibrant Ashkenazi presence in my, in Seward Park, that's where I grew up, but you're right, yeah, it's, it's, it's part of, like, this is really just part of, I think, a broader story of trying to figure out who you are as an immigrant, you know, in a, in a new, in a new place. Uh, some of it is not even necessarily even Jewishly related. For example, at best, I was just kind of, um, eh, you know, like I said, ambivalent about my background. But then there were even times when there was a little bit of embarrassment or shame when I, you know, and, and now when I speak about it, I would, you know, I would tell that kid, what are you doing? But again, we have to go through these, you know, these moments and these insecurities and you know, as, as, as children, you just, you know, you want to fit in. But I remember, for example, when a friend of mine would call, my mom would answer the phone, that her accent, you know, was very, very pronounced. Now, again, the funny thing, Dora, is we had a bunch of other immigrant Jews in the community, especially Israelis, right? But for some reason, Israeli, especially that, it felt still like the norm. Like that kind of accent is okay. That's Israeli, right? That's the Jewish state. That's, that's this. But this felt just kind of abnormal to me. You know, and I had this, so I had this sense of insecurity. Part of that insecurity was also I grew up in a single parent household. So I already felt like my family was incomplete, if you will. Not because of how I felt personally. My mother was my mom, my dad, my everything. But because I compared it to what I was seeing. And again, the insecurities of a child. So, so that was one thing. I also remember people just, I think the few times I would talk about my background, they would say, oh, so you're Russian. And even as a, at a young age, I knew that that wasn't, true that it wasn't accurate fast forward now i would say that it's inaccurate also and then that's an inaccurate way to, to identify a jew from russia we were never none of these jewish communities were ever we were always seen as jews in the soviet union literally that was other it's called like the, the fifth line of our identity cards said jew so you were never russian or ukrainian enough or belarusian you were jewish a Russian-speaking Jew, right, or a Ukrainian-speaking Jew, but you are you are a Jew for all the you know all the benefits of that in terms of our own internal pride and all of the the trauma of that in terms of how people saw you and the anti-Semitism that, that that emerged out of that. So so even for Jews from Ashkenazi Jews from Russia, it's very inappropriate to say that they're Russian Jews, which is why the term Russian-speaking Jew emerged. Um, so they would say that, or they would say, you know, I've never heard of this. This country, Uzbekistan. What is? I remember one one kid. I don't know why I remember this. Said, "Oh, Tashkent. That sounds like Trashkent." And I'm remembering this right now. Again, it's little stuff. It's kids. You know, we are all jerks a little bit when we were children. But these things, you 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 remember. Um, I also remember this uh, uh, little anecdote. We had a family tree project. This was in third grade. I want to say just when we 
came to uh, to New York, I mean, sorry, to Seattle. At that point, I was speaking English for all of like two years, but was getting quite good at it. And uh, so we had this, we had this family tree project. And I called up my grandfather who was living in New York, may he rest in peace, who we'll get to in a second because my grandfather is the root of all of my love and, and passion for my people's story and in turn for global Jewish diversity. So I called up my grandfather and um, to, to get some names because I knew, I know he would, he would know everything. And I actually remember before we moved to Seattle, you know, some of my earliest memories with my grandfather are sitting next to him and going through century old photos with him. I loved doing that. And even in these moments when I felt less of kind of a pride or outward connection uh, to, to, to my past, I would remember these very fondly, these moments that continued on and ultimately led me to really, as this podcast says, reclaim it and, 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 and make meaning of it myself. But anyway, so I call my grandfather. He starts telling me the family, you know, family lineage. And, and he says, you know, my uh, grand, he says my father's name was Mashiach. And I, I'm like, okay, interesting. I was kind of, I, I didn't hear any of my, you know, kids in my, and I went to a Jewish day school with that name, but I wrote it down. And then I remember I came to school and one of the kids said, Mashiach, that can't be right. Mashiach hasn't come yet. You know, that, 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 you know, that, that's a mistake. I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, probably my grandfather, as wonderful as he is, he probably just didn't know what he was saying. You know, again, we are out there in the confines of the Jewish world on, on, the, on the borders of, you know, of it kind of on the edges and also the Soviet Union that probably, you know, there was a real onslaught on religion and everything, which is very true. And that's a whole other traumatic chapter of how much of it was robbed of us. Much more so of, I would say, our Ashkenazi brothers, sisters and siblings in on the northern parts of the Soviet Union, it was a bit less kind of when you started getting to the, kind of the outer parts, uh, but still it was there. My grandfather never knew how to read Hebrew, which is why when I had my bar mitzvah, he was so emotional because he saw this coming full circle. You know, we come from a family of very learned kachamim, of Jewish scholars. My grandfather saw this as a child, and then he saw that being completely robbed from us. By the time he was seven, I think by, by, by age seven, he was already orphaned. His parents had passed away. And a lot of that generation that was learned uh, then quickly passed away. And then you had the Soviet Union attack on Judaism and Jewish thought and religion. Um, and so he and my parent genera parents generation, those were the two generations that were experienced that. And then all of a sudden you have me reading the Perasha completely you know, on the Teva in, in, in synagogue and giving a beautiful Devar Torah and leading Musaf prayers and all this. And he was so emotional. So this is that same grandfather. So I'm saying to myself, you know, maybe it's a product of that, of the, you know, kind of not assimilation, but the liturgical and intellectual poverty of our communities, uh, Jewish poverty because of what happened to us and all this. So I changed it. I wrote Moshe because I didn't want to, feel like the weird kid and I thought and I genuinely thought maybe my grandpa made a mistake but I would never ask him and I would never correct him god forbid no 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 so um so I do that 
later on, many years later, I realized that Mashiach was a very uh, common name. It's a very common, common. And, and, and beautiful name that was used in the Persian-speaking world. I also learned that it actually was used in other parts of the world, but specifically in the Persian-speaking world, we had rabbis with that name. And it doesn't mean that you that we were taking away from the Messiah, just like if you name somebody Moshe, you're not taking away from Moshe Rabbeinu, from our, you know, uh, leader and prophet Moshe, or Rachel, you're not taking away from our matriarch, Rachel, but at that point, I didn't have the language to really articulate this kid that you're being ignorant, <laughs> right? All I could do was just, so these are just little examples of, of ways in which I swept under the rug these parts of my, of my identity. And then later on, again, speaking how it wasn't just in the Jewish world, third day of high school, 9-11 happened. That I'm, I'm that generation. Right? I'm the generation of, of the attacks of, of 9-11 and then the subsequent war on terror, as uh, the Bush administration called it. I went to a, a secular high school. And over there, I remember, I think we had like an orientation and we were talking about where we were from. I, I brought up that I'm from Uzbekistan. And then a couple of days later, 9-11 happens. And I remember this one kid saying, what did your country do to us? I'm thinking to myself, again, I wish I had the language and the confidence to be like, first of all, there was nobody from Uzbekistan. Maybe you're saying Afghanistan, maybe that, but, but to him, it was just all one, you know, land of the sands. And we were all just enemies now, you know, of, of America. And so, and again, this is just one story. It didn't go farther than that. I mean, I, I know folks that were, you know, they, their homes were vandalized. I mean, it could have got, been a lot worse and it, and it didn't go that way. But that one little thing made me, again, kind of made me retreat into my shell and just tell people, oh, I'm from, you know, the former Soviet Union. Do with it what you want. So that was me for many years. But with time, I started to reconnect to my own history, my own roots, my own heritage. And what led to that were a couple of things. Number one, my continued interactions with my grandfather, of blessed memory, and the knowledge that he had of our family, the details that he, you know, every time I would speak to him, it's as if there's a new story, a story that he didn't tell me before that he told me. I don't remember what happened last week. He remembered things that happened 60 years ago, right? And we would continue looking through these photos. With, with time, realized what a blessing it was that we had these photos so well preserved that I had somebody like my grandfather to pass on this knowledge and these stories and this history and all this, all these experiences. And what a blessing it is that I am part of this really special History, a history that was um, kind of an exception, you know, or or a, but not in a good way, like a, you know, a history that um, was an afterthought, something like this. That was me as a child, and with time, I realized no, that that is what makes it. The fact that many folks might not know about it, the fact that it does have all these interesting layers, that is what makes it so special. But that took time. And I think part of it is also, at, you know, when you just come into your own, when, when you know, as an older teenager, you really start, you know, you're on, on route to becoming a young adult. And you just start gaining a certain confidence. So that confidence from speaking with my grandfather, from having a deeper understanding of how the exact things that I thought were a, a stumbling block are actually 
sources of should be sources of, of pride and empowerment. The same things, those things that I that I thought were going to hold me back are actually our assets, right? So it was it was a real flip there. It was also at a time when in high school I started learning more about and really celebrating crucial values in the US, which are diversity and multiculturalism. And I started learning about this in school. I started reading about this myself, about the importance of the immigrant experience and experiences in the American story. And I said to myself, I'm part of this. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, and and my, my story is quite literally, I came here. I am an immigrant myself. So I helped found a, this is the first thing that I founded. And, and, from, and, and it was the beginning of many other just like social entrepreneurial endeavors. I helped revive uh, my high school's uh, diversity club. We called ourselves Bridges because we're, you know, it's very cute. We're creating, you know, building bridges and everything. And that then really allowed me to not only take even deeper pride in my own background, but harness it in a leadership capacity. And that's when I realized not only do I have an interesting, you know, and we all have interesting stories to tell, but not only was I able to you know, take pride in, in my own story as, as, as part of that collection of, 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 of beautiful stories. Um, so not only was it something that was in a personal journey for me in my you know second part of high school, but it became a way for me to find my place in community organizing and in leadership. And so again, it all came back, it all went, you know, it, it all goes back to my own background. Um, this is something, this is a fire that never was that extinguished. My love for community building and leadership, community organizing, social entrepreneurship, all of this um, has only, the fire has only grown. Um, but when I think about it, I haven't, I've never really actually said this before. Like it really, I would really, you know, point the origin of that was when I um, became co-president of this club and was able to start in a more kind of public way, leaning into and embracing my own multilayer identity, and then using that as a way of creating a platform for other multicultural, multilayered stories, and having that empathy for, for others uh, whose stories might also be quote unquote surprising or different, whatever word we want to say. So that was in, so in high school is really when I started kind of more deeply reconnecting to my own identity and with that this is where then Uzbekistan comes mm -hmm. um, with that this um, growing desire emerged to go back where it all started and the deeper I got into uh, my both family's history and the more broadly Bukharian Jewish history the more I said I, I need to I need to go back <laughs> And this only grew, this desire only grew when I was in college. In college, it went to a whole other level because in college, now I'm in this vibrant academic environment where not only am I able to kind of further everything that I was already doing in high school in terms of like take even more pride in my, you know, here I am now in, a, in, 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 a, in an institution, in a space where diversity is really valued where there are not necessarily people exactly like me, but, but more people than ever before that are coming from similar backgrounds of being first-generation Americans and, and, and some being refugees and, and, and uh, holding these transnational identities. So 
I felt really um, in many ways at home. It was still in some ways confusing to many people when I would say Central Asian, Uzbekistan and Jewish. But now more than ever, I felt empowered to use it as a teachable moment. I didn't run away now anymore. I didn't shy away. It was it, it might, you know, might have been surprising to some people. And I said, well, let's learn about it. Let's let's lean into this. And through that, I realized very quickly that my story wasn't the only one that was surprising to many very learned people. I realized that particularly in, in the Jewish context, um, the stories of many of us who are Jews from Muslim majority countries and, and Islamic lands, those stories were presented as conundrum to many people, including even like academics who didn't know what to do with us. And so for me, I could have gone the route of like, you know what, let me throw my hands up and just, you know, give up. Or I could have, the route that I went was the route of using those opportunities to further people's thinking and, and broaden their horizons. And I realized this also when I majored um, in Jewish studies and Middle Eastern studies. At that point, it was the department was known as the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Uh, since then, they've changed it to Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures, I think. Anyway, very kind of, you know, a, with, with very fuzzy borders. Where does the Near East begin and end? All that we can talk about the time. But, but anyway, so I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I major in these two things, I will finally be able to now academically, in a scholarly level, um, deepen my knowledge of communities like my community and communities like mine. And I quickly realized that that wasn't really the case. Both these departments had a real blind spot to Sephardic and Mizrahi Jewish communities. Since then, by the way, there is now Sephardic Studies uh, um, program within the Jewish Studies Department at the University of Washington, and it's wonderful. It's largely Ottoman focused, but that's amazing in and of itself. But when I was there, this wasn't there. And so again, I used it as an, I, I took it as an opportunity to really then do my own research and investigation. And I had professors who were so excited about it. They weren't experts in this, but they said, you know what, do independent studies with me. Uh, we'll give you the, you know, the methodology and the, and the research tools and all that. And, um, and you'll do this, the, you know, this work, this kind of cutting edge work. And, and so that was really, really exciting. So now in college, there was an other level on a kind of on an academic level, I was able to deepen the connection to my own identity and then by extension to the greater Sephardic and Mizrahi world and was able to see the gaps that are there, but but was kind of addressing them in my own humble little way. And at the same time, I found that that's when I did found Near Eastern Studies Student Association. We call ourselves a NELC SA. And that was really, really invigorating because it was marrying all of these passions of mine, my own academic interests, but also my own identity. And, and it surrounded me with people who I wanted to be around, people who were enthusiastic about multiculturalism, people who would listen with joy about the multiple layers of not of my story and, and stories like mine. It wasn't just about me, but people who are, you know, committed to that, that kind of work. Uh, basically, it was an environment where I didn't have to now feel ashamed about any, any of these, uh, not even ashamed, but just feel like exhausted by explaining all of this stuff. So that was, that was in college. And that led even to a deeper, more profound yearning to go to 
Central Asia. Here I am now, not only you know fully embracing all these parts of who I am, but but I'm researching it. I'm presenting at conferences, and I haven't been back. Right. So there was this real kind of uh, uh, dissonance, cognitive dissonance of like, I'm speaking about this place. I feel so connected now, super connected. Now I'm like a super, super Bukharian Jew in Seattle, in a place where, again, there aren't that many of us, but if in any, in, in some cases that actually gave me even a deeper sense of pride because I felt like there was more of an urgency to lean into, lean into these parts of my identity because it's not a given here. And that's all other conversation about how that happens. But I think there's a certain phenomenon and I've seen this with other, I have other friends who've um, echoed this, that when you actually don't live in the heart of a community, it sometimes can propel you to take even deeper pride and to, and to delve even more deeply into research and into unearthing the wisdom and the beauty of your tradition because you don't take it for granted. Yeah, but just, that's one thing, like you said before, as a child, you didn't have the self-confidence to do that. And so you swept it under the rug. And that's what I know a lot of people do as well. So the fact that you develop this confidence and this um, sense of pride is, is a lot on you too. I just want to put that out there because it could go either way. <laughs> you're absolutely, I appreciate it. And you're right. It can go either way, 100%. And for me, it ultimately went in the way of, yeah, I'm not in a place with thousands of my you know I, I don't live like on a street where like all my relatives are, are in the buildings right, right right next to me um and that could either make me kind of forget about this or what it did with me and i'm very blessed is it actually pushed me even further to really kind of deepen my knowledge of my own background and 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 take that pride and be i don't want to say an ambassador but be public facing you know about it anyway so i am i am here you know in college now doing all of this and and there's this i said this kind of dissonance there's this paradox where i i feel so connected to a place that i haven't been back to since we came as refugees and that started doing a real number on me this like this tension between that on top of that the other big thing that i don't always talk about but I will mention here I also know that we'll probably be wrapping up soon there's so much more I can say but I actually think you know this episode this is really a really wonderful thing to zoom on as opposed to you know what that happens in New York and da 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 and uh, because it really all is rooted in these you know childhood adolescent and college year stories I will say very briefly in a moment just very briefly like kind of fast forward to more present and and how it all has connected but, but I'll say this you know Another thing that really added complexity and a level of uh, uh, pain uh, and discomfort to the story is that my father was living in Uzbekistan, my biological father. I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I grew up in a single parent household. My parents divorced um, a long time ago, and that brought with it, you know, a lot of challenges of, not challenges of like feeling like my home was incomplete. Again, my mother had, is, is superwoman. But challenges of challenges of my mom experience as a single immigrant mother raising her children and and and, and all of this uh, and then led me to moments of having resentment towards my father and I had to go through all these different emotions. But my father, he actually had he had moved to the U.S. and did not like his life here. And those are stories we often don't hear. The stories of people who you know don't find themselves in the American dream or in, in the country that supposedly provides these opportunities, which for many of us is very, very true. And then for others, for various reasons, they, they don't find themselves here. My father was one of them. He moved back to Uzbekistan and we had a, you know, very, he was a very strange figure in my life. And 
I realized then kind of poetically one day in college that, whoa, he like represents Uzbekistan. Like he is symbolic of Uzbekistan. Here is this person who is the source of half of my genes, right? And is literally, yeah, my father. And yet I know so little about him. And here is this country that I feel this connection to. A lot of it is also, I started realizing, is an imagined connection. Because I was six and a half years old. How much of it is real and how much of it is me thinking of what it is through the stories of my grandfather, through the research that I've done, through this yearning and romanticizing, right? But it's still there. This is a this, this place that was the fertile land that led to the growth of my community, right? This is the land in which they developed their multi-layered culture and heritage. And on the one hand, it's so near and dear to me. And on the other hand, I know so little about it, especially because so much had changed. This I also knew just from my research and following current events. I mean, so much had changed since we left. We left a nascent country and now it's still relatively new, but was quickly developing. And again, same thing with my father. It was, the, he, it was the same kind of dualism of this person that I feel like I know that I really don't know. And he literally lives in this country, right? So my father lives in the motherland and both of them were, you know, occupied this very tense kind of paradoxical place in my, in my mind and in my heart. But that made me that much more hungry to go and reconnect and reunite with them both. It hasn't happened yet. And there were multiple, it's, it's beyond the, the scope of this conversation, but there were multiple reasons why it would not happen. I would come close and it would not happen for, for various reasons, uh, various things that would happen, various challenges, but it didn't happen and it hasn't happened. And then my, a uh, little over a year ago, my father had a stroke and, and then within several months of that passed away. So I was never able to accomplish the dream of, you know, seeing him and getting some closure with that. And, you know, seeing Uzbekistan kind of through his eyes, that never happened. And that's something I have to live with and I've processed, but if anything, I'm actually that much more determined now to, to go there and to still see him, but in a different way. And hopefully that will happen soon. I don't like to, you know, give an ayn hara, an evil eye at it, because when I say it, then it doesn't happen. But hopefully it will be happening soon. And God willing, my goal is to go with my mom. I want this to be a, I want this to be an intergenerational trip. I want to go with my mom for a few reasons. Number one, she was in her 30s when we left. She really has memories and knows the lay of the land in a way that I don't, and I have to be very real about that. Sure. Number two, I want to see it through her eyes. And I want just this to be an experience that I have with her. And I want us to both, in our own ways, kind of create closure with, you know, my mom's former husband and my father. May he rest in peace. So, um, and, and do a lot more there. I mean, we have friends there. We have Uzbek Muslim friends that we can, that I want us to, you know, to visit my mom's friends, you know, and, um, and there's so much, you know, there's so much there to unearth together. We're going to have to have you back for that. After that, you're definitely going to have to come back and talk you know to us. I want to make sure to touch upon three small things, but we sure. do have to wind down. 
First one is language. You talk about the different languages you spoke at home and then coming to America with the English oh, and then but, Arabic and then the calligraphy and then. Dora, just one thing. I'm so sorry. I want to finish up with my thought and then I'll answer this question. No. Fast forward now to the, to the present. I'm having some art that's being exhibited and actually this will connect the language um, that's being exhibited in the ASF gallery space. That's, I still can't believe that. But um those pieces are also printed versions of those pieces are uh, right now in the home of the U.S. ambassador to Uzbekistan. While I'm not there yet, I feel like a part of me is because I was asked, it's a program called Art in Embassies. How they found me, I still don't know. I don't have such a massive media presence, social media presence, but they found me. First, I thought it was a joke, but it wasn't because then I spoke to the actual ambassador. So that art of mine is in the home of the ambassador. So. I feel like, you know, all roads are pointing uh, uh, to that. And all that's to say also, just to really bring it fast forward to the present moment, you know, uh, when I started living later on in life, I then moved back to New York because I realized that uh, this is where I'm meant to be for a while if I really want to actualize that much more my passion for global Jewish diversity and for using my own story and stories like mine uh, to build community, be an educator, all of that, do the innovate, like social innovation work, all of that led me then to New York, which is where I really thrived and where I was really then able to, in an unprecedented way, bring all the parts of who I am, including the part that I just wanted to quickly mention, which is my um, my LGBTQ identity. And that is a whole other story in and of itself, which we're not going to get into uh, right now, um, because our stories are multifaceted and we shouldn't have to rush and talk to them, talk about it. But what I will say is that in New York, I was uh, able to really create a reality and live a life in which all of the different parts, including now we have mentioned all those other layers and this part, I could embrace and and lean into and where I didn't have to check anything at the door. And part of that meant doing again what I love to do, which is build, create the kind of reality I wanted to see. I didn't see a space for LGBTQ plus Spartacans that I could use to come together and, and bring all the parts of who we are. Uh, but if there is a place to do that, it would be New York. So even though I didn't see it, I I I, along with some wonderful community leaders of mine, with you know, Persian, Yemenite. Uh, Moroccan backgrounds, we really do encompass the greater Sephardic world. These friends of mine also felt like I haven't had that space where I don't have to compartmentalize who I am. So we built it. And I'm very proud to say that SMQN is actually, it is fiscally sponsored by the American, oh, the Sephardic Mizrahi Q Network, that's the community that we built. Um, and it's thriving and has really created a real lifeline for many of us who have, again, kind of the theme of this whole conversation is for many of us who have felt kind of neither here nor there and where we can fully belong and be fully proud and reclaim all the parts of who we are so that we can then show up in the world, right? When we are full ourselves, when we are shalem, right, whole, we then show up in the world as shalem and we're able to do good in the world. We say in Pirkei Avot, Imen Anili Mili, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But then, Ukshani Ukshani Ma'ani. Uh, but if I'm only for myself, then what am I? So you need both of us. You need to be there for you so that you can then be there for others. And I just want to say, and then I'll take, take your question, uh, that uh, this organization, uh, this movement, which is still alive and kicking, we are uh, part of the ASF umbrella. We're fiscally sponsored, which means 
you know, we are not our own nonprofit. We are an organization within a bigger nonprofit. And, and that umbrella, that mothership is the American Society Federation. And that makes a really big statement and is something that we do not take for granted at all. And again, I think speaks to the core values of the classical Sephardic tradition, which is compassion, which is adaptability and, and vibrancy. And, and a dynamism that is still rooted in a love of tradition and is intellectually rigorous, but is also cosmopolitan and adaptable. And that's exactly, by the way, full circle, what Sephardi House is all about. This this movement that I'm now putting my all into um, uh, in the uh, um, as part of my work at ASF. This movement started by a visionary who had to quickly shout out Joshua Benayim, who really had this vision of, of, of bringing this energy to Jewish life on campus. It's informed by those same values of a dynamic, adaptable, compassionate, worldly Sephardic tradition. Okay. And if you want to talk, well, I'm gonna go now because you started to talk about Sephardi House. That was part of what I wanted to close up with. So some technical things, when can we expect to see some of the uh, final projects that we saw last year? Really dynamic, out there, great projects. Yeah, great question. So this year, um, actually last year as well, but last year it kind of, it just happened to be that most of them were happening towards the end of the academic year. Uh, but this year, our the community building projects that the students have been doing have been happening throughout the year. There are four main legs to the Sephardi House Shulchan, to the Sephardi House table. There are four main components. One is our monthly learning exploration sessions that happen virtually, um, where we gather our fellows together to uh, dive deep into the, the breadth and the depth of the greater Sephardic world through different texts and uh, looking at different episodes in, in history and different important figures and guest educators that we have come and uh, community leaders and artists. So this is one part of it is the learning that we do together as a group. Number two are the one-on-one -on -one check ins uh, that I have with each fellow uh, that really serve as an opportunity to support each student in an individualized uh, way. This, this is like individualized mentorship for each student. And it allows us to really see and hear them and their stories and their experiences and how they're reclaiming their identities on their own campuses. So we have those one-on-one -on -one check ins. That's the second part. The third part is our Shabbaton. It's a leadership summit retreat that we have where we gather everybody together in person because as powerful as virtual gathering is and it's been a powerful way for us to connect nothing replicates time together especially a magical shabbat experience so we actually are having two this year we had one in new york in the fall we're gonna have one in philadelphia in the spring and then the final piece connected to what you're saying are the community building projects uh, which essentially um encourage each student to flex their own leadership muscles, bring their own unique voice to their uh, leadership work, and really apply everything that we've been learning and exploring together, apply that into something, you know, into asia, into doing, into, into action, and, and, and make, a, make a change and make an impact on their campus communities. These projects are, of, you know, it's not just a one-off, you know, students of, for many students, there are multiple series of things that they're doing, and they've been happening throughout the year. Sephardic-themed Shabbat dinners, concerts, uh, social programming like uh, Sephardic trivia night, a student-led Sephardi-themed seder for those students who could not go home for Pesach, and so on and so forth. 
So our programs that have, have been happening throughout the year, these students really are the, 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 the lifeblood of this fellowship because they are the, 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 the folks on the ground doing the wonderful and exciting work of spreading that, uh, that Sephardic spirit to their, uh, to their peers. So for those people listening, how and when can you apply for next year? The way that you can apply is we're going to have our applications for next, uh, for the for next year's cohort uh, go live quite soon. And you can go to sephardi.house. Uh, I know it's a weird URL. It's not a .com or a .org, but it works. www.sephardi, S-E-P-H-A-R-D-I.house. And that will take you to the application. And um, we are very, yeah, very excited. We're, there's already a lot of uh, enthusiasm from college students uh, to apply for next year. We're very excited uh, to roll out then year four. And we're excited to see them on our Unity Through Diversity on May 21st. See, that's my plug too. So we're excited yes. to have you interview them and join us. So usually we like to end our interviews with what would you... What do you want to make sure that the next generation knows uh, about Jewish heritage or about identity, except that you actually do this in practice? So what do you tell people they need to know or be aware of when about their Jewish heritage? Whatever I say is, you know, it's coming from my own experiences. And there's I would never want to I never want to pretend that I have, you know, the uh, the perfect prescription of how folks should connect to their heritage, their background. We have our own our own journeys, our own um, paths, and um, and our own stories. And and in that, there is no one way. I would say, and I don't think this question necessarily asked it, but I, I always want to begin with that kind of almost like deconstructing the question. Having said that, I would say from my own experiences and my own journey and my own nisya in Hebrews, we say my own journey that I've been that I've been on that we've spoken about today. One way in which folks can connect to their identities and to their sense of self is to lean into the complexity of their identities. It took me a long time, Dora, to realize that I am composed of a lot of different layers. I often speak about, you know this from my talks about the mosaic, right? This, I use that as a, as a framework, as a way to frame my uh, um, discussion on different uh, Jewish communities. And I use it as a way to, to really celebrate another thing that we've spoken about uh, throughout our time here. Um, the duality of unity and diversity. We can appreciate all the tiles of the mosaic and then also take a step back and appreciate the entire masterpiece. We need both. Each tile has its own reality, its own color, shape, texture, and size. And if one falls off, it's not really this, it's not a whole piece anymore. So we need every piece. And at the same time, we can appreciate the entire, uh, the, 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 the cohesive piece. And for me, that's how I often talk about the Jewish people, Am Yisrael, and all the different tiles of that. But I also think each of us holds a mosaic. That's what I'm trying to say here. Mm -hmm. And each of us holds this masterpiece with different tiles. And 
for me, the secret to reclaiming and celebrating my identity has been connecting to all those tiles and knowing that they all hold a special place and that they are all needed to create the mosaic that is me. And even if some of those tiles are kind of in tension with one another, right? And there is uh, uh, some paradoxes there or, or challenges that, that that's okay. But I refuse at this point in my life to check any part of who I am at the core to compartmentalize who I am. And in doing that, it has really allowed me to celebrate the robust and uh, multifaceted nature of who I am and of who we all are. And we all have those tiles. So what I would encourage in my humble, you know, what I would humbly encourage is for, uh, for folks to identify those tiles, celebrate them, lean into them, and know that they make you more Shalem, more hope. Thank you. That is just beautiful. And I think there is so much there. And we didn't even get to talk about half of what we needed to talk about, but we have to talk again anyway. So I hope everybody enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being part of Reclaiming Identity with ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Everybody watch out for our Unity Through Diversity, which is going to highlight Sparty House. So make sure you look out for Sparty House as well. And uh, thank you again. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Rora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.